We are in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit. This is it. This is a wonderful season to do so. If you know anything about gardening, horticulture, agriculture, maybe even aquaculture, all the cultures really, our culture is in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit. Hard times, hard seasons producing good fruit that we need to produce in our lives. And today, friends, we are free to be honest to goodness. That's a phrase, isn't it? Actually, I find myself saying it. Our kids ask, Mum, can we say goodness me? And the reason they're asking that is because Dad says it. <laughs> and I might say things like, honest to goodness, why is that happening? Why are you doing that? You know, I might say, good boy, good girl. But that's, and we all had that, didn't we, growing up? You're a good boy. Or if, perhaps if mum and dad were leaving and you, it was just you managing the house that day and for some reason they were out to do something and they said, now be a good boy. Which, you know, what did that mean for us? Be a good girl. What did that mean for you? And did it mean that you had to go on a series of good works and that you'd, by the time they'd come back you had donated to the Salvation Army, you had uh, cared for the poor down the end of the street and perhaps you'd established a homeless shelter for cats? Is that what you did? No, being a good boy, good girl meant at least not setting the house on fire. Being honest to goodness, friends, we're in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit and this morning we are free to be honest about goodness in our lives. See, goodness is a broad concept. When I came to this and I was talking to someone at our board of management meeting, uh, dear brother said, goodness is a big subject and I said, my goodness it is. It is huge. Like, whenever I come to each fruit, I want to pick the right text. It's, good. it's very dear to me, important that we handle the word rightly. I'm not just picking text to set my own agenda because God's setting the agenda of the fruit. I want to pick a text that that fruit is specifically talked about. And so I, uh, I'm reading through the Bible. I'm sitting on my couch on Monday morning. Sounds like a nice thing to do, isn't it? Well, it is nice, but it is hard work because I'm constantly thinking, I do not want to get this wrong. And then there's the wrong in my own life. I open up some texts, I open up some big theological books, literally they're big, some of them are this big, and uh, looking up goodness um, across the ages and the scholars and all sorts of things. It's a big subject, and it's a big subject in our world. Actually, it's a paradox in our world. Like, goodness and badness is this weird paradox we've got going on here. Like, we don't celebrate goodness in our songs, culturally, do we? Like, we don't say, I'm good. Good to the bone. We don't do that, do we? Right? A song that I can't help myself. It was on the radio this week. I'm preaching on goodness, and I'm oh, for, you know, I, I, all the channels that we can get usually just in, in the vehicle. So I punch in. It was Triple M, I think. You know, um, it's okay, I think, to listen to Triple M occasionally. And it was Billy Joel. Only the good die young. And I'm like, oh, it's a catchy little. What am I? What? <laughs> Like, we don't celebrate goodness. We celebrate badness in our songs and culture. Michael Jackson's famous for singing, I'm bad, I'm bad, you know it, I'm bad. Yet, at the end of every movie, what do we want? Like, we will feel like we wasted our money. We will feel like that we've wasted our time, we feel it sad 
if the good guy doesn't win. We want the good guy to win at the end. We want the good girl to win. We want to be the good girl. We want to be the good guy. Such a paradox we live in when it comes to goodness, which means although we like to play with badness, we ultimately, under the veneer, especially when we're in a church gathering like this, we want to be deep down good. And I know this because every time I talk about that, how we're often deep down bad, my friends, our society, have you seen the reaction? No one wants to be told we're actually deep down bad because we all want to be deep down good. Don't tell me I'm bad. Don't tell me my, my children could be even bad. Like that's, that's an awful assumption that, that we just think is assumed, but actually the Bible shows us something here. It shows us reality and that we can actually be honest to goodness, honest about goodness, and especially me, friends, if I'm going to preach about goodness. How dare I preach about goodness and not be real and honest with myself? especially in front of my church family. Here's me being honest. I regularly recognize before me a gulf of goodness. It's the first thing we see in this passage here that Jesus has just spoken about. I regularly see before me this great chasm, a gulf of goodness between me and God. Today, uh, we look in Jesus' words And he shows us this. Look at verse 37 and we'll see he highlights this gulf of goodness that exists. Judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgiven, you'll be forgiven. What's he saying? He's highlighting there needs to be forgiveness in our world. There needs to be not condemning because there is is a real judgment coming and it's actually just, it's fair, it's right and we should not take that into our hands. We'd be very careful if we're holding in our hands because we could get burnt with it. Jesus is showing us that there's a problem between us and our relationships. There's something wrong. Relationships have something wrong in them if they've got judgment and condemning and all sorts of things going on. And unforgiveness, if we've got unforgiveness, Jesus is saying there's a problem here. And the way things are wrong with us comes with warnings. I'm often wrong. Can we admit that? Our cross-reference passage was Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 famously says about the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sometimes I find understanding my own heart difficult. And it's me. The gulf between us and God started at the fall. We fell from goodness in the garden. Life was very good with God. Human history shows that whilst we're capable of good, we are capable of good, but yet it's intertwined and threaded through with bad. Today, many of us seek the good old days, don't we? Ah, the good old days, when Billy Joel was someone that people knew. (laughs) The good old days. Um, In our backyard, there's this little toy, right? It's It's a little box thing it's a game you get to wind it up and play it It was mine when i was about 13 i said to ames you know what we could do for iso i could do this for iso i could get this box thing and and play this little wind-up toy and then go oh kids with their devices these days because it looks like size of an iphone but it's just a boxing and ames said no one's going to get it russ because they didn't grow up with those things We long for the good old days, particularly the garden. 
Human history is a longing for the good old days. We miss life in the garden. We're not really sure uh, why, but we do. And just like the fall, though, when Adam and Eve, our ancient grandparents, said, we love your garden, God, we just don't want you to be hanging out with us in it. Just like we took that decision, we rebelled against him, we'd rather have the good life that he gave us, but without God, thanks very much. Psalm 14 sings this out. Romans 3 quotes it. As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In March next year, God willing, we'll have Colin Buchanan come. You know the kids singer? He's going to come and he's going to be a big concert, right? And he sings that song. For all like sheep have ba-ba-do-ba-ba. That's all of us. The Bible is like, it's full. The Bible is showing the human condition of sin. That's what the reformers call total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that we are as evil as evil. It does not mean that we're all Hitlers, right? But it does mean that every part of me is affected in some way by sin. Reformers speak of the noetic effects of sin, the nous, the mind, even the mind. Even me, thinking about my life, is affected in some way by sin. It's not that I'm as evil as I could be. I am capable of good, but it does mean I need to be honest. Genesis 1 shows us repeatedly that God creates the world and he says six times in Genesis 1, it was good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's... And then he says for the seventh time when he creates humanity, it's very good. Friends, that's what we were created for. We were created to be very good, part of his very good creation. But Genesis 3 shows how bad we became, how good God is and yet how bad we become. But then here's what happens next. We, although he is rightly the judge on the throne, we assume the throne. And that shows the gulf between us and God. So when Jesus says, judge not and you will be judged, we're the ones setting ourselves up as God. When we say that we are judge, when we are judging others, we are sitting on the throne saying, I get to be God of my life and by the way, your life. We often confuse the idea of judgment in church. Judgment becomes a buzzword, which becomes a banned word. So you can't use it, right? But we need judgment in the sense that we need discretion, judgment, wisdom. Church discipline requires judgment. It's a, it's a judgment decision to say, this sin is bad for you. I want to encourage you, dear friend, dear brother and sister, don't walk in this path. It will be bad for you. That's a judgment, right? But when Jesus is speaking about judgment here, he's speaking about the kind of judgment that says, I'm right and you're wrong totally and I'm going to condemn you with my words. History shows this is a problem for us. Humanity has been trying to cover our own sin and expose someone else's sin for a long time. And that comes with a danger of false goodness which is hypocrisy. Look at verse 41. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice a log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Oh, let me take the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the logs in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. Jesus tells a parable. Why does Jesus tell parables? He tells parables for two reasons. For one, he tells parables for those who are keen to hear. He tells the parable so you get your life changed. Like if you're following along and you're keen to hear and you want Jesus to change your life, if you get the punchline of the parable, it actually opens up meaning in so many ways. But he also tells it for another reason. He often tells parables that the danger is for those who want to turn away from Jesus, who don't want to hear, the parable highlights your problem manifold. Even as you tune out. So let's tune in, friends. Let's hear what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus talks about this exercise in speck and log, like a speck, how big is a speck? A speck is a tiny, tiny thing. I didn't look up a dictionary definition, didn't go to Oxford, Cambridge. It's tiny, isn't it? We can all agree. A speck's tiny. If we can all agree a speck is tiny, why is it we spend so much time disagreeing, breaking friendship even, fellowship even, over something we can hardly see? What is a log? How to define a log? Well, I've seen logs in people's backyards for their fireplaces. I've seen logs in the back of trucks. A log is like a log in an eye. And no matter what size log, it's ridiculous, isn't it? That's the point. The hyperbole Jesus uses here. A log would be funny. If someone was to be in a church family walking around with a log in their eye, like it would be funny, except it's not. If it weren't so sad because it blinds you. And what does a log do, unlike a speck even? A log keeps other people at a distance. Don't come near me and tell me there's problems in my life. I've got a log here. But somehow with my log, I can see the speck in your life. Friends, we need to examine ourselves. Jesus uses the H word. Hypocrite. Here's something interesting. The word we have for hypocrite, you'll never believe, you'll never guess what the the original word is in Greek. It's hypocrite. (laughs) Hypocrita. This is where we get the word hypocrite from, is this, this. And and it meant a hypocrite in Jesus' day, in in the ancient Near East, in, in the Greek New Testament world, was an actor who wore a mask. You've probably seen this. You, you, you know, maybe actors still wear masks these days, but particularly in stage and theatre, you had the mask and the kind of the, the, the comedy tragedy masks. You've seen them, perhaps. The, the actor's mask, so that the actor could put on the mask and be something else on the stage. That's the word. It's for someone wearing a mask, someone pretending, people who want to look good look like they're producing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They want to look like they're leaders or look like they're pointing everyone else's out faults and, and, and they end up acting on a stage called, the stage is called, this is the pretend life I'm living. It's a stage show near you. That's being a hypocrite. False goodness is hypocrisy. Friends, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see in the fruit of the Spirit how gentle Jesus is. We're going to look at the fruit of gentleness. 
we often think of Jesus being gentle. Our society sees Jesus being gentle. In fact, I think most people in our society think Jesus is a gentle pushover religious leader. Like, that's why they say, well, Jesus would never do that. He would never say hard things. Because we think of Jesus as a pushover. But see this from Jesus himself. Of all the people Jesus gets angry with, who does he get angry with the most? Hypocrites. It doesn't matter if you're a religious hypocrite, a political hypocrite, a closet hypocrite. Whoever people, whenever people pretend to be good of themselves and are so keen to point out the problems in others, grumbling about others and never talking about God in their own heart, you've got a hypocrite. And if that's you, you are living the life of a hypocrite. It is full-face stage acting hypocrisy. Hypocrites with false goodness cannot see clearly. The log they have in their eye prevents them seeing something and, 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 and they, actually the log in their eye prevents them saying something that, that they have trouble with the most. And it goes like this. They have difficulty saying this word. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm sorry. A hypocrite has difficulty saying, I'm sorry. Dear friends, when was the last time you wanted to point out someone else's wrong? Think on that. Now, when was the last time you said, I'm sorry? Think on that. Can I be real with you right now? I know I can reforming. This is us. I've had a discouraging year. It was a discouraging couple of years. I had a discouraging week. I could, with all the words the Apostle Paul uses, he's being honest, he says in 2 Corinthians, he despaired of life itself. He was burdened beyond his strength. I've had a discouraging week, a frustrating week. And although I'd like to, I'd be so tempted to list all the circumstances that frustrated me and the discouragement I had and the problems and so forth. The truth is, I am my own frustration. You see, friends, a real apology has no buts. We often like to apologize that way, don't we? I'm sorry, but this was happening for me. I'm sorry, but you... (laughs) Uh, That's not an apology. Sorry, but is not an apology. How do you define an apology? Think of you before God. I'm sorry, but you. Sounds like a bit like Jonah on his bad day, doesn't it? I'm sorry, but them. I'm sorry, but the circumstances. Russ, no. A real apology has no buts, no excuses, no exception clauses. Romans 3, there is no unrighteous, not even one, no one does good, including me. Friends, I needed to say sorry this week, and it is so good for me. I said it to our elders, actually. After a year of discouragement, frustration, actually, no, 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 no. No buts. No excuses. Here it is. I expressed my frustrations on a WhatsApp channel, discouraging week and all. I'm so discouraged about this, that and the other. And at the end, I just said, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brothers. Do you know what happened next? They forgave me. Who would have thought? Wow, in a Christian community, that could happen? Who would have thought that? And then I remembered our last elders meeting, which was about two weeks ago, another elder apologised for his frustrations of the season this year. And guess what happened? He was forgiven. It's amazing. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought that even elders are not meant to be hypocrites? You see, if our elders, who are not elite Christians, by the way, they're example Christians as they lead, if they pretend to be perfect and have got it all together and are all good and can never say sorry and never admit wrong, what is our danger? You hypocrites. Last week... We looked at how our leaders need to be kind. This week, friends, if you're a leader or aspire to be a leader, you need to be apologetic and not a hypocrite. I think we ought to be wary of a leader who can never say I'm wrong. It's dangerous. Friends, why is our culture so bent on acting? Why is our culture so bent on pretending we're all good here? Why can't we admit wrong? Why can't we apologize and say sorry, repent and find renewal? And by the way, those words that connect what Jesus said about judging others earlier means, why do we withhold forgiveness? Why is it someone comes to apologize and we don't talk to them? We just withhold forgiveness from them. That's also a dangerous thing to do. You're actually judging people. You're condemning them. Friends, if you're wondering how this works, think of you and God. Like, could you ever admit wrong before God? Yes. What, how do you know that? We have it in our call to worship. It's our confession of sin every week. We actually have not had the full-throated confession of sin because we've got masks. I know it's a bit hard, sort of, all everyone's sort of speaking it, but we do it every week. James says, confess your sins to one another. If we can't approach God with an attitude of confessing sin, which we ought to, how can we ever approach one another in right relationship without admitting we're wrong? Goodness. Let's be honest to goodness here. Why do we as churches have that at our heart? Why would we pay lip service liturgy rather than getting real with repentance? Here is the opportunity before us right now. Right here, right now. Let's be liberated from the baggage and bondage to hypocrisy. Right here, right now. Let's make a statement, a declaration, a confession together that we will stop pretending to be perfect. That we will stop pretending that we're good, we're all right, we never can admit wrong. Let's find safety and solace in Christ and his church. Let's be liberated from hypocrisy by saying and regularly rejoicing in repentance, I'm sorry. Try it. It'll change your life. It'll change your marriages. It'll change your friendships. It really will. On a daily basis. 
What we need to do is recognize I'm a sinner and then we can help other sinners with specs. And what Jesus says next gets to the heart of the matter for he says this. If false goodness is hypocrisy, then thirdly, lastly, the fruit of goodness is from the heart. Verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from the bramble bush. Do you see? False goodness, hypocrisy is all for what people can see. It's all about the outside. It's what we saw in the kids' talk. It's just on the outside of the fruit. I've heard it said that um, it's like you're getting fruit and stapling them to yourselves and saying, well, this is the fruit of my life. It's just pretend. It doesn't work. The fruit will go rotten. Goodness on the outside won't change your life. It's simply behavior management. And that's how the world plays that game. Just manage your behavior. It never gets to the heart of the problem, which is deep inside you. Behavior management, Jesus says, the world can do that. But Jesus gives his horticultural lesson about fruit trees here in Luke 6. He takes what he already has said in Jeremiah 17 and he shows us the heart of the problem, my inner problem. The heart is that Jesus speaks of here is our inner being. It's our drive shaft. It's our motivations. It's the center of what moves us is our heart. And because the depths of sin's corrupting power, sin is like a virus and it moves into our being and it takes over our heart. And Jesus says something very interesting here using a very interesting word in verse 45. And this is not just for the word nerds. Look at verse 45. He uses a very interesting word. In verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure, that's the word, of his heart produces good. Now, when we see treasure, as I said earlier in the service, we think, oh, we think money, you know, kind of gold. Jesus actually uses a different word. This is the word Jesus uses for treasure here. Thesauru. Can you guess what word we use for that today? Thesauru. Thesaurus. Jesus uses the word for thesaurus here that we use. The word thesaurus means treasure or words of treasure. He used... Why I find that interesting is this. Our heart life shapes our word life. It's like a thesaurus of words. Jesus says at the end, for out of the abundance of the heart, a person's mouth speaks. The fruit of goodness will be seen in your words. Now, sometimes we can behavior management that, can't we? We can just not say certain things. But a lot of times the circumstances come and that's when the words come out and you see the fruit being produced. Our heart shapes our words, our heart shapes our life. Jesus is saying to you and me and everyone who hears this, whatever your circumstances, whatever season you're in, you will only produce real goodness, the real good fruit, if your heart is healthy. Otherwise, bad fruit will be seen eventually, even if on the outside it seems okay to start with. But you cut open the orange, like we saw on the kids' talk, and it's really that bad. Now we could finish the sermon right there. But if we did... Something is dramatically missing. How? How am I going to produce good fruit then? Because I know my problem. I've told you about it. 
And that was his last week. How am I going to grow in producing the fruit of the Spirit in my life? How can I be a healthy tree, a good tree with good fruit, especially in a season where I get so discouraged, so frustrated, so flat? How can I produce good fruit? Well, no, if you cut open my fruit, you dig into my roots, you look under, you see in the bark of your life, I'm just prone to be a bad tree. Would somebody help me? Well, the one who does help is the one who tells his story. He's the gardener. And he grafts us onto the tree of life. And here's the wonderful thing. He is that tree. The goodness of Christ changes everything. It's often said you you can't understand um, grace until you understand sin. So when it comes to preaching the gospel, well, you can't understand grace. Don't preach the gospel of grace until you preach sin. But friends, we missed an important step before that. You can't understand sin until you understand what's good. How do you understand sin of Genesis 3 unless you understand the good of Genesis 1 and 2? You can't understand sin unless you see good. And here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is good. Like, he's the guy who is God. Who says to a young, self-assured and self-righteous guy who wants to show off how good he is when he comes to him and says, you know, good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus sees this young man and goes, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. But here's the wonderful, here's the wonderful uh, end game. He's God. Look at his life. Jesus is the opposite to Romans 3. Jesus is the only one who is righteous. He's the only one who does good. Jesus is the only one who bears good fruit. But get this, more than this, he bears good fruit, but then he goes and bears our sins. He shoulders them, he takes them on himself on the cross. Jeremiah 17 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Here's where the gospel gets so crazy good news. Jesus became that cursed man on the cross. He got cursed so you and I could be forgiven and free. So which tree do you want to be? Here's how. Put your roots of faith into Jesus. Trust him. Believe in him. Build your life, grow your life in Jesus. Listen to Jesus on a daily basis and watch your heart be changed as you believe in him and become like him and bear fruit like him, even goodness, even in your words. I reckon if you put a gauge on me and measured my life like this, you know, like a fuel gauge, my fuel gauge gets low when I'm listening to Jesus less. It gets low and then I get an empty tank and that's when the words don't come out like Christ. But you fill me with Christ every day. I get a full tank. That's where it changes things. Jeremiah 17 verse 6. He is like a shrub in a desert. He shall not see any good come. Those who are cursed, he'll dwell in a parched land of wilderness, in a salt land. We were created for the fruit of goodness, friends, but because of sin, we're dead trees. We're like old gums in a salt flat. We're hanging with rotten fruit, but you can bear good fruit if you plant your life in Christ. And this is what happens. Jeremiah 17 verse 8. He's like a tree planted by water. He sends out roots by the stream, does not bear, does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He's not anxious about years of drought does not cease to bear fruit. By planting your trust in Jesus, you'll believe deeply what he's done for you. You'll believe deeply he loves you deeply. 
Friends, who is reforming church? We are an orchard. We're an orchard of trees bearing good fruit now. Reforming church is a culture of of people who are liberated not to be hypocrites anymore, but be real with one another. A church where we can know Christ's heart is for us now. He's the tree of life where we can actually admit wrong and say, I'm sorry, not reluctantly, but joyfully. We can ask for help. We can know we're saved and we can know we're safe here. We're healed. We can be a church where leaders are real. We really do actually say, I'm often wrong. It's not just a call to worship we say as part of liturgy. It's really from our lips. I'm wrong. I'm often wrong. I'm sorry. A church where friendships are forged stronger through conflict, through forgiveness, by first pulling logs out before we help others with their specs. A church where marriages are healed, where we're saying sorry to one another, we're admitting wrong and we're loving one another and forgiving one another. We grow healthy by having our roots in our marriages deeply held in Christ together. A church where little disciples of children grow to know that grown-ups need Jesus too. That they watch grown-ups admitting wrong. They watch grown-ups saying sorry. They watch their parents saying sorry. They watch their pastor and church leaders and elders say sorry. A church where youth have a safe place of grace, where they can make mistakes and no one's going to condemn them and judge them, but love them and point them towards Jesus because they need Jesus and so do we. A church where spiritually blind people have their eyes opened. I now I see. A church where we judge not because we know that we're loved by the judge and saviour, Jesus. A church where dead trees are made alive in Christ. He is our praise. Let's pray. Lord, as you heal us, we praise you. The fountain of delights, beautiful saviour. Help us produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life, the fruit of goodness. Thank you that we now can, in Christ's name. Amen.